This is Radio Maria. A very warm welcome this afternoon. And, as you can tell, it's time for Credo, as you've heard in the introduction there. We're very privileged and a great pleasure to have live, coming direct from Oxford, it's Father Nicholas Crow, who will be continuing his talk, the series of talks, and this is the penultimate one, so next week's the last one, folks, so I... Uh, I urge you to, uh, to to make sure you listen in. And today, Father will be discussing the verification of a call. So, good afternoon, Father. Good afternoon. Good. Welcome, as Thank always, to Radio Marie. It's lovely to have you back. And um, as usual, I'll pass the ball over to you and our dear listeners. And then in about 15 or 20 minutes, we'll have a, a little music break. Excellent. Thank you very much. So, um, again, to recap the story so far, uh, as I'm conscious that perhaps not everyone has been um, listening to the whole, the whole series, but in our first two lectures, we explored the notion of vocation or calling itself. We emphasised that vocation is an analogous concept that turns on the notion of God summoning us to a definite goal. And we said that the primary reference our notion of vocation is the call to beatitude, the call to heaven itself. At its most at fundamental level, we are all friendship with God in this life so as to enjoy eternal happiness in the next. This is the primary sense of the notion of vocation. In a secondary sense, we can speak of a vocation to a particular state of life within the church, such as marriage, for example, the priesthood, religious life, which serves as our context in which we make that journey to heaven. It's vocation in its secondary sense. And then there's a third level of vocation, which is the particular works of mercy and charity, which God calls us to perform today. So that was the first two lectures. In lecture three, I suggested that the ordinary way in which we hear God's call is through the scriptures. God speaks to us through his word. And following the French Dominican theologian, Benoit Dominique de Le Sujol, I propose to you that the literal sense of the word of God carries a spiritual sense, which is a personal word from God addressed to each one of us individually. That's why 10 different people praying together with the same piece of scripture can hear 10 different words from God. Within this word, there's a personal word carried by the Spirit for each individual person. And that's the ordinary way in which we hear God's call. We might have extraordinary experiences of revelations or spiritual, mystical experiences from, from God, but the ordinary way that God speaks to us is through his word. But listening to the word is not enough. We learn from the parable of the sower that if the word is to bear fruit in our souls, then it needs to find good soil. So in lectures four, five, and six, we talked about the kinds of factors that deepen our soil, clear it of rocks or thorns, as um, to, to continue the imagery of 
the parable. So in talk four, lecture four, we spoke about the human factors, the influence of nature, nurture, and our virtues and vices. And we examined the influence they can have on our choice in the present moment. Talk five, we turned our attention to the life of grace and the way that infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit recreate us and create in us a new capacity to share God's life, a new sensitivity to the promptings of the Spirit, a new capacity to respond generously to God's summons. And then in lecture six, we thought about the way that these natural factors and these supernatural factors interact in, in the life of a single human person. And what I was trying really to draw out for you in that session is the way that bad habits on a natural level can make it harder to discern God's will for our life because they can confuse what we want. They can confuse our desire, make us want the wrong things. And in this way, it makes it harder for us to hear God's call and understand what he wants from us. And finally, with all this background in place, we were ready last week to turn our minds to the question of individual discernment. How does an individual know that God is calling them to the priesthood, for example, or the religious life? And I propose to you, extrapolate, extrapolating uh, a little from the advice of a Roman commission in a letter to the Bishop of Arles, which was later, um, I forgot to say it last week, it was later confirmed by Pope Pius X um, in the Acta Apostolicae Sedis 1912. So it's a papal authority behind it as well. I propose to you that when it comes to the priesthood, the key signs of a priestly vocation are a good intention. So a man is choosing to offer his life to God as a priest for the right reasons. A firm resolve. This isn't just a whim. This is a, a firm commitment that this man has made. He really wants to offer to God this gift. And capacity, which is the ability to bear the burdens of the life, to fulfill the duties and obligations that this life involves. And I suggested to you that in an analogous way, we can we can apply those same three criteria, intention, resolve, capacity, to other states of life as well, such as the religious life, for example, and even, although perhaps in a different way, to marriage. As I used to say to the young men who were considering becoming a Dominican when I was um, vocations director for my order, there's really three questions in play if you're thinking about religious life, but you can only answer two of them now. The first question is, do I really want it? So in that question, I'm merging those categories of intention and resolve. Do I really want to join this religious order as it really is and not as a kind of romantic fantasy in my mind? Second, am I able to do it? Does the circumstances of my life, my mental health, my physical health, 
um, my responsibilities, my aptitudes and so forth mean that it's possible for me to search for God in this way. St. Thomas Aquinas thinks that, and I'm you know, ex paraphrasing here, St. Thomas Aquinas thinks that if the answer to those two questions are, yes, I really want it, and yes, I'm able to do it, you should just try it. There's no need to spend a long time discerning. Just try it. Because the third question is, do I really have the grace? And that's the only, that's the only question you can only really answer in the reality. We can only really tell that this intention and resolve has been inspired in us by the grace of, of the Holy Spirit by actually putting a habit on and trying to live the life. Because grace is always in the reality, right? We can't imagine a future. Imagine what it would be like if God graced us, because we don't know the gifts that God is going to pour out upon us. So in the end, when it comes to the religious life, certainly, we just have to, we have to take a risk and try. With good intention, good resolve, good capacity, we just have to try. I think probably the same is true for a vocation to the priesthood. Good intention, good resolve, capacity, try, enter the seminary, and we'll find out if that, that grace is real in the process of formation. It's a little bit more complicate, complicated with marriage, I think, because marriage is a, a natural vocation as well. It's a, a natural institution um, as well. But even then, I think the, the questions are, are, are helpful and, and, and um, useful in specifying whether someone really should be getting married. Do you have a good intention? Are you marrying this man or woman for the right reasons? Do you have a strong resolve? Are you, are you are you prepared to 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 work at this marriage for in sickness and in health richer and poorer and so forth third do you have the capacity to 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 make this relationship and this marriage work so last week we were really thinking about the 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 individual um, and the criteria around which they might um, use to make the to judge whether is God really calling me to this state of life, and put put like this the way I've just very briefly summarised it. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Probably too simple, because we all know that in fact mistakes are made. People do make bad choices. People do end up in context that, that clearly with hindsight was not right for them. It's possible for a young person especially to be mistaken about their intention, their resolve and their capacity. As I've been emphasising all the way through this series, human beings are complicated. The interaction, nature, nurture, virtues, vices, infused virtues, gifts of the spirit, all of this creates a complexity in our heart. These two questions, do I really want it? 
am I able to do it, become very confused. They sound simple, but they can become very difficult to answer because we want different things at different levels of our being. Every single person that I worked with who was thinking of pursuing a priestly vocation or a religious vocation was nevertheless able to identify in themselves a desire to become a husband and a father. And the reason for that is simple. It's natural and good to be a husband and a father. And so it's natural and good to be drawn to that way of life. In fact, you would worry more about a guy if he wasn't able to identify that kind of attraction um, in him. But at the same time, if we are called to be a priest or to be a religious, we part of the way we know that is because we want it. Right? There's another part of us that really wants to make this offering. So one of the things I used to say to the young men that I worked with was, you know, I wanted to get married and to start a family. I just wanted to be a Dominican friar more, right? And because of the complexity of the human person and this different layering of our desire that happens through this different, diff these different layers of our moral personality, I don't think it's possible to be more than 70% sure when it comes to a celibate vocation. There's always an element of risk. And if we've acquired some unhealthy attachments along the way, um, particularly around the question of sexuality, then actually it can become even more confused. The question of what I want can become even more difficult. And that's one of the reasons why I spent so much time in this series talking about the quality of our soil, the influence of nature, nurture, virtues and vices, infused virtues, gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we make discernment of God's will for our lives easier the more aligned we are to God's will in every aspect of our life. The, the more that we can um, clear the ground of thorns and rocks and so forth, these things that impede God's blessings and it are enjoyed, these, these things that draw us to want the wrong things, the freer we become to um, discern God's will. So given um, all this complexity then, we might think that St. Thomas is, St. Thomas Aquinas is too reckless when he says to people, it's all about your intention. Do you, are you able to do it? Shouldn't St. Thomas encourage people to think more, to discern more, to, to um, ponder more deeply before making this, um, this, this dramatic life, these kind of dramatic commitments. And St. Thomas says no, right? And, and often people are quite shocked by that. Um, 
St. Thomas thinks you don't need to discern anymore. In fact, he act actively discourages young people from spending too long discerning. He basically thinks that you know, if you have this kind of desire in you, and that, as far as you can tell, is the most powerful desire in your heart, or the best part of you, this is what the best part of you wants, then, then try it. Get on with it, belong. And his reasons for thinking this are fairly straightforward. He says that people only discern about matters that are important or doubtful. Right? So in other words, he thinks we discern when we're not sure whether or not something is good. But St. Thomas thinks that the religious life, the priesthood, these are obviously good things. Right? There's no doubt about whether it's good to be a priest or good to be a friar or a nun or a monk or a sister. So Aquinas thinks that if a young man or woman to give their whole lives to God in this way, they should be encouraged. We shouldn't be trying to um, put them back in their box too quickly. However, that doesn't mean that he thinks they should be immediately accepted. And this is something I think that our contemporary church really needs to work on. St. Thomas thinks that it's the responsibility of the community, those that are experienced in the spiritual life, especially those that love the young person in question, to discern with them and judge with them whether, in fact, this is right. So I'm going to read what he says because it's so often overlooked. St. Thomas says this. The words test the spirit if they be of God apply to those cases in which there are doubts whether the spirit is of God. Therefore, there may be a doubt on the part of those already in religious life, whether the one who offers himself, that's the young inquirer, is led by God or deceived. Therefore, they must test the candidate to see if he is moved by a divine spirit. But he who comes to religious life can have no doubt that his intention to enter religious life comes from the spirit of God. OK, so you see what St. Thomas is doing here. He's saying a young person at the beginning of their spiritual journey is not yet mature enough in the spiritual life to be able to make this kind of discernment. All the young person is able to do is be as honest as they can about what they think they want, right? That's all they can do. And that's all we can ask of them. If a young person thinks that they want to offer their life to God as a priest, or the young person thinks they want to offer their life to God as um, a religious, maybe even as a married person. I think with marriage, it's, it's slightly different. But all we can ask from them is, is that they are, are honest about what they think they want and why. Discernment of the spirits is a facility in St. Thomas's view, a, a gift, a skill, 
that is acquired by long practice of the spiritual life. It's the fruit of long fidelity to the grace of God. A Christian that is faithful to their apprenticeship, to the life of discipleship, and over time to the voice of the master, to the way that God moves and speaks. It's unreasonable in St. Thomas's view to expect a young person who's at the beginning of their spiritual journey to have already developed that instinct for God. That perhaps offering themselves to a religious order precisely because they want to grow in holiness, precisely because they want to nurture these gifts. All that we can reasonably expect of a young person is that they are honest and truthful about their desires, their hopes, their fears, their motivations, as far as they can tell. The burden of discernment of spirits, identifying the spirit that comes from God in St. Thomas's model, lies with those who are mature in the spiritual life. Now, St. Thomas is writing in an age when people entered religious orders very young, probably 16 years old. Although I wonder if this necessarily means that they were less mature by today's standards. It's possible even that in terms of Christian formation, a 13th century 16-year-old would have known more of the Bible and doctrine than um, a, a young person now. But the key point I want to underline before we break for the music is that in St. Thomas's view, the burden of discernment does not lie with the individual young person alone. And I think it's important, that's important. But St. Thomas, the Christian community as a whole, those who love the young person, need to take responsibility for discerning with them, for helping them to understand their place in the world and in the church. So we're going to break for some music and then we're going to think a little bit more about how the community verifies a young person's sense of call and helps them to find the place where they're truly meant to be. That's great, Father. Thank you very much. Much appreciated that your first half of the of your talk on the verification of the call. And in the meantime, here's a little music. Hallelujah.
Welcome back to Credo this afternoon, and you've been listening to Father Nicholas on his talk on the verification of a call. And I'm going to hand back over now to Oxford, where Father Nicholas will pick up on the on part two. Over to you, Father. Thank you very much. So, um, before the the musical break, I um, introduced St Thomas's idea, which I think is so neglected now. That the response of the burden of discernment does not lie solely with a young person. It's a it's a communal responsibility. Now, St. Thomas was thinking, especially of the responsibility of the of a religious community accepting a young person, accepting someone who's applied to enter. But I'm proposing to you that actually it's it's bigger than that. It's it's includes also everyone who loves that young person. Discernment is a communal project. How then does a community verify a religious vocation? How do we tell that someone is on the right path? Queen Elizabeth I famously declared that she did not want to have windows into men's souls. And neither should we, right? So I'm not talking about uh, an oppressive scrutiny of um, a person's Heart from the outside. St. Paul warns us in chapter two of his first lesson, first letter to the Corinthians, who among men knows, knows the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him, right? So I, we, the first thing I want to really emphasize is that I'm not, we need to be careful of not presuming that we can know a person or, or um, even understand the mystery of a, a human person. From the outside, we always have to respect the kind of the mystery of each person and, and um, the wonder of um, the interaction of grace with that person. Nevertheless, the American Dominican Edward Farrell, who was writing in the middle of the 20th century, does make the interesting argument, which I agree with, that to some extent, Vocations are visible. His point is that if you think about what it means to be a priest, what it means to be a religious, what it means to be a married person, there are certain key that are necessary to live that life well. And those virtues become visible through the way that a person lives. So he's thinking of uh, a text like chapter two of the letter of James, where St. James says, I will show you my faith by my deeds, right? So faith is an invisible reality. Yes, St. James is saying that you can recognize the faith in another Christian by the way they live. Edward Farrell's making a similar point about a, a vocation from God. 
He's saying a vocation to the priesthood, the religious life, marriage in a different way, is invisible. Yet we can see that vocation, barrel things, in the way that a person lives, because there's certain virtues characteristic of each state of life. And if a person is called to that state of life, then we'll be able to see the manifestation of those key, the way that they live. So for example, the key virtue of the religious life is the virtue of religion. That's why it's called the religious life. The clue is in the name. Religious brothers and sisters have committed their lives to practicing the virtue of religion, which is the virtue of offering gifts to God. Isn't every Christian called to practice religion? Of course. So distinguishes religious, religious monks, friars, nuns, sisters, and so on, is not the practice of religion as such, but the intensity of the commitment. Religious have committed their whole lives to the practice of this virtue. And an intensity of commitment is characterized by the virtue of magnanimity, literally great spiritedness, right? Magnanimity. Magnanimity is a virtue which is about aspiring for excellence, right? So it's the virtue of the artist who desires to produce a great work of art just to produce something beautiful, or the scientist who devotes themselves to study for the sake of truth, or the politician, for example, or campaigner who devotes themselves to a great cause for the sake of goodness and justice. So it describes the state of a soul in which intention and attention are focused on great things and the accomplishment of great tasks. So the key virtues then are for the religious life, are the virtue of religion, which is the virtue of offering gifts to God, working with, which is the desire to offer a great gift to God, to make a super intense offering of um, one's life to God. Indeed, these two virtues working together are what enable the act of religious profession, which is when a person offers their whole life to God as a gift, poverty, chastity, and obedience. This is often understood to be the most um, complete gift to God that we can possibly make because we offer God everything. So it's the most complete act of religion, which is made possible by a certain greatness of spirit, magna anima, a greatness of soul. So the, the key virtues for the religious life, magnanimity and religion working together. And it may be that for a particular religious order, according to um, their charism, we could um, um, identify other um virtues as uh, as well but um this is the baseline for all religious magnanimity 
and religion. So Farrell's point then is that if someone is truly called to the religious life, the evidence of those virtues in the way that they live, if the language of virtue is to be meaningful at all, we must have some idea of what religious behaviour, magnanimous behaviour looks like. And if a person is genuinely called to religious life, we ought to be able to see that kind of behaviour in the young person proposing to embark on the this form of life. And these signs, if you like, of the presence of um, religion and magnanimity working together in a person's life it are a confirmation, a verification that this young person truly is meant to be a monk, a friar, a sister, a nun, that this really is where God wants them to be. Now, it's easy to do this kind of procedure um, with a religious life, because as, as I said, the clue is in the name. It takes a bit more reflection to think about what, what are the key virtues that we would want to see in a married person, in a husband, in a wife. We can name a few, something like fidelity perhaps, for a married couple. Um, what's the key virtues that we want to see in a priest? We can name a few, say justice, maybe, something like that. Uh, I think it takes a bit more reflection for these kinds of life. But, but um, Farrell's observation, it seems to me, has some profound implications, because I think he, he's pointing to something true. No secondary state in the church is discerned individually. This point is often overlooked, but to be ordained a priest, to enter a religious order, to be married, at least one other person has got to agree with our judgment that this is the right thing. <laughs> like it's not our choice alone, at least one other person has got to agree that this is right for us. And it seems like that this communal discernment only do well if we have at least some understanding as a community of what we expect to see in a good priest or in a good husband or in a good wife, or in a good religious, and so on. Communal discernment, I think, is really important, but it does rely on the community taking responsibility to think together about the goods and obligations of each state of life. And if we accurately narrate the manner in which a given state of life is ordered to the ultimate goal, our primary vocation, life of heaven, then in the same movement we, we sketch a portrait 
of what a well-disposed candidate for that way of life will look like. We describe the virtues that we as a Christian community want to see in the different limbs of the body of Christ. Now, this common narration of the different roles in the church and their associated virtues um, it, it joins up with an idea of the, the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, but other people have, have made similar ideas. Basically, MacIntyre said, to some extent, it's true that we know ourselves better than anyone. But in other respects, other people know us better than we know ourselves. For example, when I was a teenager, I was utterly convinced I was going to be a professional cricketer. I even told the careers advisor that when I was 16 years old, didn't need to think about a career, I was going to be a professional cricketer. It took my coach to very gently tell me that perhaps I'd be better off concentrating on my studies, right? Now, that's a trivial example. But I think we've all probably had moments like that, that our idea of ourselves is not what other people see. And actually, they're seeing the truth. This is the kind of idea that Farrell is getting at, right? Is that if we have a clearer idea as a community over what we expect to see in a priest, in a husband, in a wife, in a religious, then we as a community are in a better position to tell each other the truth about where we see one another in the church and the gifts that we bring to the church. Gifts that maybe we don't see, right? Because we only have a partial perspective on ourselves. So I'm going to pause there um, for a, a another um, musical interlude. After that, I just have um, uh, one last um, thought really to share with you about this whole process. But I, my key point I really want to, to bring out is that there is a communal dimension to discernment because there are particular virtues that we want to see in each state of life. And we can see them to some extent in the way that people live, perhaps better and the individual in question can see themselves. Great. That's fantastic, Father. Thank you very much. Lots there, again, as always, to uh, reflect and contemplate on. And uh, if any of our listeners have any questions, any queries, or just like to call in and say how great Father Nicholas is, you're welcome to do that. We'll be back after this.
This is Radio Maria. Very warm welcome back. You've been listening to Credo with Father Nicholas Crow live from Oxford, where he's been giving a, uh, the penultimate talk in his series on the call of vocations. And today we've been listening to the verification of a call. A very interesting talk it's been as well. So uh, I think Father Nicholas has got a little bit more to say before we... Um, conclude so i'm going to hand over the airways back to you thank you very much so what i've been trying to do in, in this session is is really push back a little bit on a tendency that i see in the church at the moment to think about vocation and vocational discernment as being a very private and introspective affair instead i want to balance it's always going to be an element that's personal there's always that's this it must be the case it's a personal judgment but at the same time i think we need to balance that with an understanding that our calling is a summons to take up a role in the body of christ and if a christian community is healthy it will understand the role that a young person is proposing to take up and it will be able to judge under the guidance of the holy spirit particularly older members who are spiritually mature, whether a person is suitable for that role. So this responsibility of a community to discern the callings of its members must be more than just a safety valve for those cases when an individual's discernment goes wrong. It's a reminder that the whole question of a vocation is centred on goodness. And the good of a human being is always a communal good research for God together and our call emerges and becomes visible in the midst of an ecclesial life. So concretely this points to the importance of a healthy lo local church in raising up vocations and by this I don't just mean religious institutions, I mean the shared life of Christians beginning with the Christian family. We've already underlined over the course of this series the importance of evangelization and formation. And these, of course, are all activities that we do together as disciples in Christ. But to this now, I want to add a communal res responsibility that all of us have as disciples to nurture, encourage and name the gifts and the virtues of those that we share our Christian life with. So if we see a good priest, why is that priest a good priest? Right. If we begin to articulate to one another what it is that makes a good priest, a good husband, a good sister, a good friar, a good wife, then we're beginning to enrich our vocabulary to help the next generation recognize where they fit in in the body of Christ, how they can best serve our Lord to build up the kingdom here on earth. The discernment of a vocation is an inherently ecclesial church exercise because a calling is an inherently ecclesial reality made visible in a certain sense by our acts of virtue. We really reduce, truncate our understanding of God's call 
if our focus lies solely with the individual who discerns. Instead, our lens should be widened to consider a young person's position and activity within a community and the nature of the ecclesial role that they propose to take on. So whilst on the one hand then we must always insist that a divine vocation is inherently mysterious, because we cannot know the things of God as they are in themselves. On the other hand, we must also remember that we can gain a partial knowledge of the things of God by their effects. If a divine vocation is anchored in the virtues, then these principles, infused principles, will to some extent be manifested in virtuous acts. In the case of the religious life, we've identified religion and magnanimity as being key eliciting virtues for a divine call. I would suggest that if it's harder for us to identify similar key virtues for the priesthood and marriage, then we ought to take seriously the possibility that this is indicative among, of a confusion we have amongst ourselves as to the role of a priest or a husband or a wife in the church. And so maybe that's if there's someone listening, thinking of a master's thesis or a doctorate that they'd like to take on, that would be a useful project. And useful for us to think together about what these roles are now and how we, um, what the key eliciting virtues for these states of life would be. So if we understand the manner in which vocation in the secondary sense, according to a state of life, is ordered to our primary vocation, which is the call to live in friendship with God in this life, so as to enjoy eternal happiness with him in the next, we ought to be able to describe certain behaviours that are characteristic of this end. And so the virtues that are particularly well exemplified by this form of discipleship. A Christian community that is able and willing to articulate the kinds of virtues, behaviours that we expect to see manifested in the limbs of the different members of the church and name those virtues, affirm them when we see them in our young people, is a community that is well placed to raise up new vocations from our young, to the priesthood, to the religious life, to marriage. So in my last talk next week, I'm going to think more practically and concretely about the work of um, vocations promotion. Um, it was going to be a lot more gentle, no theory next week, all, uh, all, all practice as a, as a final conclusion. This, that's the end of um, the theory, really, for, for this series. All right. That's great, Father. Thanks. I think um, one of the big take-homes for me, listening to your talks, having the, the opportunity to... Uh, to focusing and, uh, and uh, pay, pay attention is um, this idea of the Christian community guiding the the person who's uh, who's got an attraction to uh, to the religious life. I remember it kind of chimes a bit with what you said a week or a couple of weeks ago between 
uh, personal feelings versus uh, the bishop, I think you mentioned. Mm, that's right. Yeah. With uh, Lehiton's critique on the vocations are not mm -hmm. just about feelings. So things are starting to cement here with the with each talk. That's right. Is, yeah, no, it's great. And um, like I said, that's um, the real take home for me is the uh, the idea of the of the religious community assisting mm -hmm. and helping and maybe recognizing, like you said before, talents that we don't know we've got. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we might be thinking we've got a certain talent for cricket, <laughs> a famous actor, whatever it may be. And um, that might not be our calling. That's not, and we need uh, religious communities to, uh, to sustain us and to, again, bring the best out, almost like a director and an actor brings the best out of the actor when they're rehearsing them, the, the, the play or the, or the film. So, uh, so I want to say thank you for that. It's been um, another great hour spent in your company and uh, just before we leave so next week ladies and gentlemen it's the last talk so uh, i urge you to tune in and you can find out all the past episodes of this uh, Kaleido series along with all the other programs we do on our website and uh, if you look on the programs and uh, uh, podcasts you shall find them all available there but before we sign off is it okay do we have time for um, a prayer sure all right sure. okay so in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for the great gifts that you've, and diverse gifts that you've poured out among our brothers and sisters. And we pray for the wisdom and insight to, to, to recognise these gifts, especially in our young person, young people. And we pray for the courage to affirm those gifts and praise those gifts when we see them. And we pray for the understanding to see how these gifts can be fruitful in the context of your church, Lord God. We make our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.